0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And the words should be on the screen in front of you. All right, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Father God, we're thankful to be here tonight. We thank you that we can worship you in song. And we thank you for your word. And that we have it in our language, Lord, and we can meditate on it, and you can speak to us directly tonight. And, um, Lord, we honor you as creator. And we thank you that you you made us in a wonderful way. And you gave us amazing instructions, Lord. I pray that you preach through Taylor tonight. You'd speak exactly the words that we need to hear. I pray that you convict every heart in the room, including mine, and that we would not leave the same. We ask you, Spirit, to move. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: i take that. Thanks, buddy. Good evening.
0: Good evening. All right. Okay.
1: So we are doing a series uh, that started last week, and it was a, a surprising sermon last week because of a word that my sister gave, and the, the, I think a word that the Lord gave to her for me. So, we started with repentance, which I thought was going to be a one off, but it ends up, uh, it's a kingdom series that we're doing up until Advent, up till Thanksgiving. We meet Thursdays, obviously, so Thursday is Thanksgiving. So, we'll meet up to that week, and we won't, will not meet on, on Thanksgiving week. Uh, we might meet some other time, we'll let you know about that. But so, um, that was the first repentance as the entrance into the kingdom of a seven sermon series on the kingdom. And. Um, Tonight, though, I'm starting where I was planning on starting, which is what it's going to be is it's going to be preaching on the kingdom of God and what is it, because I feel like we hear about the kingdom a lot, but I don't know if any of us could really, a lot of us would have trouble maybe defining what that is, what it looks like, and um, yet it's all over the scriptures, and so one of the things we're going to do is it is going to be proclamation of the kingdom, but it's also going to be sort of a theology, walking through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in six weeks, and so we're starting where the Bible starts on kingdom in Genesis 1, this, uh, I almost said this morning, oh, that won't be the last time, this, this evening. Um, the scriptures are God's word. In other words, it's what, the scriptures are what God wants to tell us as his image bearers. And that, and that word converges on Jesus Christ. And, it, and it, it only makes sense through the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word. John says in John chapter 1 in, the, in his gospel, Christ is the word. So, of course, it makes sense that if the scriptures are God's word, they would be all about Jesus. Um, and what is Jesus' main message? When he comes to town, when he passes through the heavens in the fullness of time to come and live with us and die for us and rise for us and reestablish the reign of God, His favorite topic is the kingdom of God. It's mentioned over 50 times in Matthew. A ton of his parables are about how. What's the common refrain? The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. So many of his parables are about the kingdom of heaven. Um, George Eldon Ladd writes in his "The Gospel of the Kingdom." He says, "Quote: The kingdom of God was the central message of our Lord's ministry. You cannot understand Jesus." Or, therefore, the Bible, which is God's word to us, which converges on Jesus and is about Jesus and takes you to Jesus and flows out of Jesus, unless you understand the kingdom of God. Um, But what is it? To put it another way, what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God has come? The kingdom of God is within you and so on and so forth. Um, And one of the reasons I want to preach on the kingdom during this time is because it's election season. We all know this. Many of us are are ruining that fact, uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's messy. It's a messy time. And, um, we've got, you know, the riots that happened this summer, COVID, all this stuff, there's turmoil, there's turbulence. We're ramping up to elections and the presidential elections that we have every four years. And I remember last presidential election cycle, four years ago, a lot of our people lost it. They just lost it. Uh, all, all around the elections, before the election, during the election, after the election. And I, I, as a pastor and as a Christian and as a person, was really asking myself, especially afterwards, why, why? Why couldn't we handle this? Why did it disturb us so much? And I think that a lot of us were hanging our hopes on the kingdom of America. And I, and I feel like it was a confusion of kingdoms. doesn't mean that elections shouldn't be important to us, but it does mean that uh, they aren't everything and actually countries and uh, life cycles of nations have their place underneath and within the context of the rule of God. And so I feel like this is going to be a stabilizer for us to be able to appreciate this season in its rightful context and not to hang our hopes. Yes, to be good citizens. Yes, to vote. Yes, to be involved. Yes, to be thankful for our freedoms, but not to hang our hopes on the kingdom of America, but rather on the kingdom of God. Um, I think that The kingdom problem is is a special problem in this part of the world. We've lived in various places around the world, and and when you come back home, it's especially evident that I think that in this part of the country, in the world in particular, we have an especially impoverished understanding of the reign of, of God in Christ. A lot of us, when we think of Christ reigning, we think of the future. And that's no bueno. That's no good, because I want to make the case to you that Christ is reigning now. That the victory is his and through, and through him the victory is ours. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And that really should make a difference in the way that we live. Regardless of the election results, regardless of COVID, we're more than conquerors. Regardless of race riots. Um, and it actually should help us engage in those things more, not less. Because if we think that Christ is going to reign one day, but he's not reigning right now, we're going to have a sort of evacuationist theology that says, wait, let's just get saved and get to heaven. The earth is going to hell in a handbasket. That's not... That's an impoverished kingdom mentality. Um, so, I, again, that said, if, if the kingdom of God is, was the central thing Jesus was about, and we miss this, we, there's a sense in which we miss Jesus. Um, like I said, in this part of the country, I think we, in large part, miss it. And so what we've done, I think, in part, is we've made an idol out of Jesus in our own, of our own imagining A personal Savior who meets our needs, but not the Lord and King of all, risen, reigning, and soon to return. And that He is. And what He demands as the King is our complete allegiance. Um, So we're going to talk about that together for the next few weeks. Um, What does the Bible have to say about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man? And so we'll we'll ramp up uh, to Advent this way. And... In short, and then I'll start preaching, and we'll get much more into this in the coming weeks, so don't worry. But the kingdom of God is God's reign. It's God's rule. And there's a sense, too, in which I would say it's God's rule or reign manifest. Okay? Now, what does this look like? And the best place to start, I think, answering this question is where where God starts in Genesis 1. Okay? But before we go there, a bit from Walker Percy who wrote a lot of books, one of them was called Lost in the Cosmos, he talks about how we are as a human species, we're we're disoriented, we're born disoriented, we're born estranged with a sense of estrangement from ourselves and a sense of being displaced, Um, from ourselves not least, right? Displaced in the world, estranged from others, estranged from ourselves. So he puts it like this, he puts it in a bunch of witty ways, he's both witty and profound, he says, how, how is it that I could know so much about the Crab Nebula, you know, or about bits of the Milky Way or thing, other things that the Hubble Space Telescope shows me or about how to build a bridge or a skyscraper or how to operate on a human body and yet know so very little about the depths of my own heart, misunderstand myself so much? Why is it that I can walk into a room and somebody that I've been with for five minutes that's just met me can understand certain things about me more than I do about myself. They can spot things that I haven't, I've been blind to my whole life. I was wearing not this mask, but another mask, taking my daughter into ballet today. And she needed it because she had forgotten her, so I gave it to her. And she put it on. And the first thing she said is, oh, it smells like your breath. And. Um, that's the human condition is a lot like that. Like, I, I don't smell my own breath. You, we don't, we're not offended by our own breath unless it's really bad. But other people notice it right away. What is it about us that we are not offended by ourselves, but other people, if you're a very proud person, you walk in the room, people can't stand being around you, but it doesn't bother you. You're blind to it. Why, why is that? So there's this disorientation and estrangement, this brokenness. The second thing is, he, ta- he says that there's a huge yawning sense of purpose that's embedded in all of us like it's a purpose that I I never can seem to attain to in my own life I know that I'm made for more and I can I can never get there I'm always getting in my own way J.R. Tolkien who wrote The Lord of the Rings um, wrote about this in a little essay called Leaf by Niggle Leaf by Niggle and I won't say much more about it except he hits on this point about how basically Nigel spends his whole life, he has this grand ambition for drawing a fabulous, wonderful, life-size tree. And all he gets to in his whole life is a leaf. It's all he does. But he has this tree in his head and then he dies. He kind of like, I don't know, he cuts himself and then gets pneumonia and then dies. And it, don't worry, there's an uptick. It's redemptive. There's a bigger point, okay? There's a bigger point. But. One of the points is that we have these soaring ambitions. We know what we're made for. We seem to know there's this sense in us of greatness, but we're always getting in our own way. Um, Life is always getting in our own way. I'm always sabotaging myself. There's this ancient splendor um, that that seems to be, but now an echo in my heart and in my life. There's a sense of lost greatness. And the answer is in part here in this text that Nathaniel just read. Let me go ahead and read it again, just maybe verse 28. God makes man and woman in his own image. Uh, They're the cherry on the top of the ice cream sundae of God's creation. They are the only image bearers. Not even the angels bear the image of God. We alone, human beings, bear God's image. We're endowed with this greatness, and yet this greatness underneath the king in subservience to him, in relationship with him, in loving, knowing relationship with him. Um, and, And verse 28 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and what? Subdue it. And have what? Dominion over everything I've made. Dominion. We are made to reign. We are made to reign. We are made to be kings and queens. And that is our inheritance, but um, we've lost it, okay? And I'll get to that in a second. In the ancient Near East, so, so he makes man and woman in his image, and then he says, be fruitful, multiply, have lots of children that have lots of children, and fill the earth with my image. So this is kind of lost on us. We pretty much just here have lots of kids. But in the ancient Near East, one of the ways that a king, you didn't have media like we have today. you couldn't, Nobody could see, except for the people that were around the king, could see his face, knew what he looked like, had any contact with him. And so the, one of the things that would happen is for the king to establish his reign and to say, this is my dominion, this is my domain, he would create images of himself and place them in, around in the areas where he reigned. And so one of the things that Moses, who writes this, is saying to Israel is God made us to be his image bearers and to show, to fill the earth with his image and to show all of creation that God reigns through the way that we live and have dominion. And um, also in Genesis 2, we're not going to spend a lot of time on here, in here, but in Genesis 2, there's a picture of the man and woman were naked. And it's not just physical. It's talking about complete vulnerability with each other, a horizontal being known transparency, honesty, there's nothing to hide, there's no shame, a vertical relationship in the same way, and there's just, there's love, there's trust, there's vulnerability, um, this is what God made us for, but the, the estrangement and the disorientation and the sense of purpose that we never are able to reach and gr- reach out and grab, always getting in our own way, comes about um, in the next chapter, In Genesis 3 which is popularly referred to as sometimes as the fall but one teacher as one teacher said the fall is when you you know you fall over your feet or you fall down the stairs it can be a minor thing but this was a major thing this was our first parents from whom we come into birth we are born into sin the dominion of sin and death and rebellion against God Uh, they rebelled against God and his word and they went their own way and what does Paul say, the apostle, in Romans chapter 8? He says, because of that, we groan on the inside and all of creation is groaning. All creation is racked with the consequences of our rebellion. And we're born into that. And so um, this teacher says, you can refer to it as the fall. God created all things perfect, but then we fell. But it's maybe better referred to as the, as decreation. It undoes. Because we were given dominion. Over all of God's creation, whatever we were over cracked when we rebelled against God. And so you can see the effects of the fall or the decreation everywhere, not least in our own hearts. Um, But you see this not just in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are, there's a curse pronounced over them and what they put their hands to. And then they're kicked out of the garden that God put them in um, for their own protection, really. But you see this rapid descent in the first few chapters after that, in Genesis 3, 4, and 5, into madness, into sin, and into an evil that overtakes their hearts and the whole world. So, again, in Genesis 3, there's the disobedience of Adam and Eve, um, and we are represented in them as in the first birth as we're born. But then in chapter 4, at least they hid and there was shame. There was shame when God came. And all of a sudden they're hiding from him, whereas there was total transparency, now they're hiding. And he says, where are you? What's wrong? Where are you? And he calls them back out. In chapter 4, their children, Cain and Abel, Cain murders Abel, as a lot of you know. Their progeny, one of them murders his own brother. And there's no shame. We see how fast in one chapter, evil has progressed. He murders his brother, and then he talks back to God when God approaches him. He doesn't try to cover it. There's no shame. He lies. He lies. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And there's no shame. He just pushes it back in God's face. And after that, one of his descendants marries two women. He's the first polygamist in the Bible. And whenever you see scholar Robert Alter says this, uh, even though there's no necessarily outright denouncement of polygamy, every time you see it in the Old Testament, it's an absolute disaster. This is the first instance of polygamy. Lamech has two wives. He kills a boy for taunting him, for basically accidentally hitting him. He kills the boy. And he goes and he makes a song out of it to his wife and he brags. He, he's, he's rejoicing in the fact that he's just murdered a kid. So you see the, the rapid um, met, uh, metastasizing of sin and evil. Chapter 5 of Genesis, it's, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, a lot of us will just skip that chapter. Don't do that. It's a genealogy. And what is happening? It's a drum roll of death. Genesis chapter 5 is the drum roll of death. Adam dies. His sons die. Their sons die. Everyone dies. And then in chapter 6, we see that God has sees that there's evil spreading out all over all the earth. And he, and he laments the fact that he has even made us. And so he starts over with Noah. And um, incidentally, and I'm going to say this and move on. This is not the point. This biblical picture of being made in God's image, perfect, loving him and one another and having dominion as his co-rulers, is the op- and then descending quickly because of our rebellion, is the opposite picture of Darwinism. Darwinism is, is the exact opposite of that. Darwinism, which is kind of how we see history if we're brought up in this system in the West, is an ascent through our own evolution, through blind chance and energy into greater and greater sophistication. It's the exact opposite of the biblical picture of anthropology and history. And I'm just going to leave that there. Okay, you can take that home with you. We can talk about that later. But what I want to do, um, really, for most of the rest of the time, which we don't have a lot, dig into one verse together and then say a few things in closing, okay? And then continue with our time of, of ministry and worship and prayer um, look at me with Genesis 3.15 this is the chapter where Adam and Eve fall they rebel against God and they fall and what happens here in Genesis 3.15 and it's actually 14 and 15 they're a pair is let me just take a step back from Genesis 3.15 and give you a, a bit of context and I'm just going to give you one Hebrew term it's, just, it's a literary term and it's called a chiasm or a chiasmus. It's called either one, a chiasm, okay? And a chiasm is simply a literary mirror. So what happens, there was, no, there was no way to underline something that was important or italicize it or highlight it in an ancient text. And so the way the Hebrews would do that, the way they would accentuate a text, is they would do it by position and by literary device. And so a literary mirror is they would say three things and then they would echo those three things again. And the thing in the middle is often the thing that is getting the highlight, is getting the emphasis. And what we have here is a what every scholar agrees is a chiasm. And what, what's the chiasm? We, we, we rebel against God and we sin, we disobey him. Eve eats the fruit, the forbidden fruit, and she gives it to her husband and he eats with knowledge. He's not deceived, he eats with knowledge. And so the responsibility is his and it's passed on through him. The sin curse is passed on through Adam uh, which is why it's important that one day the king that's going to save us is going to come through a virgin. And the sin curse will not be passed on through because his, his, his uh, father is God. And yet he's fully man, born through a woman. So that's important. We'll come back to that later. But and that's actually embedded in this verse. But um, God approaches them. He could, just, he could have just, he said, Don't eat from, you can eat from every tree, every single tree. You can just have dominion, eat from every tree, just not this one. And that's the one thing that they do. He could have wiped the plate clean with them. He would have been within his rights. It's not what he does, does he? He comes to them and he seeks out a reconciling. He asks them a question in Genesis 3:9, where are you? And I'll come back to that in a second. Where are you? And he starts, because he knows where they are. He's asking for a confession. He's bringing them back into relationship, right? And uh, so he says, where are you? And he talks to who, for, who does he talk to first? Someone said it, out of, the babes, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you shall ordain praise for yourself. Adam. He talks to the man first, because the man's the one who's responsible for the family. Adam sat there silent while his wife ate the fruit, and he knew what was happening. He goes to the man first. Then who does he go to? Then he goes to the woman. And then who does he go to? The third party. The snake. The serpent. Okay? Satan. Okay? And then... He goes back to the woman, and then he goes back to the man. So do you see the chiasm? Man, woman, serpent in the middle, back out to the woman, back out to the man. Okay, so right in the middle of this chiasm, if you think of it like a literary, bull, uh, literary target, the snake is in the bullseye. Now let's look at that, what he says to the snake. Um, he says, why did you do this, man? Why did you do this, woman? And then to the snake, he pronounces a curse. And that's in verse 15. He says this. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity, or the word means hatred, I will make enemies of, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, there's going to be an offspring of, there are going to be two lines that are going to shoot throughout the rest of history, throughout the rest of the Bible, which is God's true story of salvation history, how he's going to bring about salvation through the curse and make all things right again. And it's embedded, this promise of how he's going to do that is embedded here. But there are going to be two lines that are going to shoot throughout the rest of Scripture. And this is one great way to sort of get a a hold on what's happening as Scripture progresses. There's going to be the kids of the children of Satan. What does Jesus say when he comes along to the Pharisees? You brood of vipers, you're you're sons of the devil. We are born enthralled to the prince of this world, Satan. But God is, God is our father and we need to be reconciled to him. So, so he says there's going to be the sons of the serpent and there's going to be the sons of the woman. Okay, and those two lines are going to shoot throughout, um, through, throughout the Bible. And I'm going to get back to that in just a second. So he says this. Let me finish. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And what? Here's the promise. He shall bruise or crush. The Hebrew verb means the same thing. He shall bruise or crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Now, a couple things on that, just briefly. First of all, as I said, these two lines radiate throughout Scripture. And what radiates throughout Scripture? The hatred between them. In other words, God is saying war is going to characterize the line through which I'm going to bring my salvation the children of the woman and the children of Satan. Okay? You're, it, there's no gray area. You're either my kids. As the, kid, as the children of the woman, the line that I, through which I'm gonna bring salvation, or your children of Satan, okay? And there's gonna be a war between them that's gonna rage. It's gonna rage all throughout Scripture. Um, and, but, so God's, one of the things here we see is God's people will be at war. They will be at war, and there will be a war waged against them. Um, these two kingdoms, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of, of the evil one, and the kingdom of God, are gonna be at war. Um, but there's a promise here of the fact that the, the son of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Okay? He's going to crush the head. Of the, so there's a promise here that's given. And we kind of take for granted that, there's a, that we're heading somewhere in history. That we're going somewhere. That there, there's going to be resolution. That there's a linear uh, sort of trajectory in history. But the Greeks and many ancient peoples didn't have this. This is a Judeo... Christian biblical inheritance. The Greeks had a circular view of history. There's no progress. Things just go around and around. But what we see here is things are heading somewhere. They're heading toward a resolution. There's a promise embedded in this. There's going to be a king that's going to come, and he's going to reverse the curse. Okay? He's going to reverse the curse. We have hope. We're headed somewhere. Um, The other thing that we see here is that who, how does the verse start? Does Does it say there's going to be hatred Between the serpent and the woman and between their two seeds? No, it doesn't say there's going to be hatred. It says, I will put enmity. That's how the verse starts. And in the Hebrew, the way the verse uh, of sentence starts is often emphatic. It emphasizes. And in this case, that's certainly the case. The first word in the Hebrew is hatred or enmity. And then following that is, will I put? Who's putting the hatred between the two lines? God. God. In the midst of this war, we can be confident throughout history, God is in control. God is the one who's orchestrating these things, and he's stepping right into the curse, and we're going to get there in a second. God is the one who arranges it. Why? Because all of history is going to converge on this son of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is arranging all things toward this point. All of history is going to converge on this point, who's the son, okay? Okay. Um, and then within that large chiasm, I just want to show you briefly, there's a smaller chiasm in this verse. He says, I'm going to put hatred between, he's talking to the serpent, your seed and her seed. And he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, the serpent, and you will crush his heel. So what we have in the middle is her seed. And he will crush your head. So what we have in the middle of this smaller chiasm in this verse is this seed of the woman and what he's going to do. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that is the emphasis here. Um, not only is God telling us that this son, this man is the point of history, but what? It's telling us that what he's going to do, his conquest. When, you, when your heel is crushed, you're wounded, but you're, you're going to make it. When someone's head is crushed, what does that mean? Finito. Terminado. Finis. You're done. Right? So the conquest, the conquest of this son of the woman, his conquering the deceiver and evil and sin is going to be the way, it's going to be the convergence point of what he came to do. Okay? Now think about this image for just a little bit longer and then we'll pull out and then I'll close. Okay? Think about this image. What's the promise? Okay? The promise is that you serpent are going to strike at you're going to crush or bruise his heel. The serpent is going to bite this son of the woman on the heel. And you're going to do serious damage on his heel. But he's going to crush your head. Now, how does a man crush the head of a serpent? With what instrument on his body? Not with your hand. With your heel. Let me and so let's extrapolate. What's the promise? The very place. Here's what all history is going to be driving towards, according to God, in the midst of this curse, in the hot core of this curse. All of history is going to be driving toward this man who's going to come from a woman. He's going to be a true man, a human. He's going to reverse the curse by crushing the head of the serpent in the very place where he is wounded and damaged and where pain is inflicted on him. In that very place with that same instrument, the heel. In this image, he is going to end evil. He's going to crush the power of evil. And he's going to bring us back into dominion. Um, And so what we see here is scholars call this the proto-evangelion, the first mention of the good news. It's the first whisper of dominion that has been lost, regained by a man who's going to come. And so constantly as we move throughout the rest of the Bible, and we're going to be uh, next week in some of the prophets, okay, looking at the promise of Messiah. It's a whisper here. There's going to, there's going to be one who's come, going to come. He's going to come from the woman, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And he's going to obey where Adam did not obey. And the very place where it looks like he's defeated is going to be the very place of his victory. And it's the first forecast of the Christ, and it's the first forecast of the cross, because at the cross, everyone else, the entire world, even Jesus' friends, even though it was been forecast, said, he's done, he's finished, he's defeated. We thought he was the Messiah. But here we see, even here we see, we hear whispered, no, the very place of his defeat, he's going to take into himself the curse that we unleashed on the world. And that holds us in thraldom and that holds the world in groaning prison. He's going to take it into himself. He's going to defeat it on the cross. He's going to bury it. And he's going to rise new. And he's going to represent all who look to him. That very place of apparent defeat is going to be the place of conquest. Um, And the last thing about this chiasm is, again, it's the center. The curse is at the center of the chiasm. That is the very place that God steps in with his promise of salvation. In other words, this God is the kind of God... And the way that he's going to save is he's going to step right in to the bullseye of the curse. He's going to step. He could have sideswiped it. He could have started over. He could have said, all right, you're done. He said, I'm going to go right into the hot white center of the curse. And entering into that curse, I'm going to explode it from the inside. Um, And this is what God has done for us in Christ. And this is the first picture we have of how God's going to reestablish the dominion that we lost through Jesus Christ. Um, It's a whisper here. When we get to someone like King David, it becomes like plain speech. By the time we get to the prophets closer and closer to the arrival of Christ, it becomes like a trumpet. It becomes like a trumpet. And then in the fullness of time, Christ comes. So back to the last lost in the cosmos. Um, because he has come Jesus and his kingdom is here and coming in and through us and because he is seated on his throne and because we have been reconciled to God in Christ by looking to him as our Lord and Savior and as the second Adam who came and did what Adam failed to do right for us in our place representing us as a man but bringing us back to God as fully God right Um, because of this our work matters not let's just be saved and and Jesus just means we get to be saved and go to heaven. No, because the king has come, his kingdom is being manifest in the lives of those who um, trust in him as the coming king who died, who lived in our place and died in our place and is risen and reigning and is returning. And everything we put our hands to now by faith in Christ actually matters. OK, so to go back to leaf by niggle, I said, you know, you're going to have to read the story, but it's short. It's easy. Um, but a bit, a bit of insight into the redemption. He only finishes a leaf. But actually because of what happens after he dies, he realizes that leaf was a deposit. Because of who God is, that leaf was a deposit um, into a work that is finished in the next life as he steps across death. It's, it's, it's a deposit into a much larger thing that God has been doing all along. And I think Martin Luther the reformer said it great. Somebody asked him if Jesus came back tomorrow and you knew about it, what would you do? A lot of us would say I don't know, I'd go jump out of a plane with a, you know, a parachute. I'd have I'd, I'd go to a water park or whatever. I'd spend the day, I don't know, grilling out. Um, go driving driving fast cars. Luther said something much more prosaic. He said, "If I knew Christ was coming back tomorrow, I'd plant a tree." I'd plant a tree. Think of how well it would do. In other words, it's like painting a leaf. I plant a tree, I do something simple, I put a seed in the ground. Why? Because he understood that the the new creation that Christ is bringing about that starts the minute that we believe on him, it doesn't doesn't mean that this life doesn't matter. It means that this life matters because we don't have to, that work won't be finished here. It's going to carry on and continue and flourish in the new creation. Because of what Jesus has done, Death is just a bridge over into the place where all things will be made new. And it starts the minute that we trust in him. And then everything we put our hands to by faith in Christ matters. It's seeds being planted. I plant a tree, think of how well it would do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your kingdom come. I thank you that we don't have to wait for your reign, that you conquered at the place of apparent defeat on the cross you showed your strength manifestly in laying your life down for us you rose from the dead and in you by faith in you not through our own good works we are free from all that has held us in bondage sin and its power death the dominion of satan we've been brought back into the family of god through his work in person not through our own and i thank you that you're reigning jesus and that we are reigning with you regardless of covid regardless of race riots, regardless of an election that most of us aren't looking forward to that's coming, uh, regardless of all sorts of stuff that's happening, our confidence is in you and your kingdom and what you've done and who you are and what you've secured. That is our hope, not the kingdom of America. And because that is our hope, the stuff that we do here as citizens and as neighbors matters. And so we bless you. We pray as we walk through these weeks together for greater understanding, for greater love, for greater effectiveness as kingdom citizens. We pray that you would save. We pray that you would shape us and make us more like Jesus and give us a greater hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen.